In Acts 12, King Herod sits down upon his royal throne, decked in his royal garments of radiant silver, surrounded by his royal subjects. And as they wait on him, he delivers a public address to the people with such elegance and poise that by the end of it, they are exclaiming, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And Herod sits back in his throne with a self-contented smile on his face and a smug glint in his eye as he accepts their enthusiastic applause and takes their garish flattery. Immediately, he is struck down by an angel and died. In Acts 12, we read the words, he was eaten by worms and died. He goes from the sound of applause ringing in his eardrums to being consumed by the digestive system of a worm. And why? Well, we read, because he did not give praise to God. He accepted the flattery, the praise of men, and improperly allowed it to be taken by himself. And so he dies. Striking, isn't it? It sounds as if it should be in the Old Testament. It's in the heart of the book of Acts. And the principle that we learn so graphically as we stand at Herod's grave is that praise must be reserved for God alone and none of it yielded to man. That is God's repeated refrain right throughout the Old Testament. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another. But throughout the Bible, that that statement is more taken as a challenge by humanity. Right from the word go, Adam and Eve, they grasp at being gods. They try and thieve his glory and make it their own. And so like Herod, we're told, they shall return to the dust. And generation after generation in the Bible either try and steal God's glory and take praise for themselves, or they exchange it and give it to something or someone else. And all, without exception, either die immediately like Herod or eventually like Adam and Eve. Now, if you need any evidence that this spirit of self-promotion still lives on in the 21st century, just watch one episode of The Apprentice. (laughs) Yeah? It is unbelievable the self-promotion, the arrogance of that show. Right from the first episode, you meet the apprentices for the first time and they say, hello, my name is amazing. (laughs) And I am amazing. And you should hire me because I am amazing. Isn't it? It is tragic. And it entertains us. But King Herod would look humble on that show. And if by the first time they accept praise or give praise to themselves the same end as Herod happened to them, it would be a very short series, wouldn't it? We would call it The Undertaker from episode two. It's true, isn't it? And we laugh at them, but the reality is that we are quite like them. We're just a little bit more subtle in the way we fish for compliments or work before the eyes of others. My heart has been assaulted this week. My conscience has been assaulted as I have thought of my Herodness. Let me ask you a few questions to start 
applying to your own hearts? Why is it that you are so concerned about how your kids behave in public? Why is it that you are so concerned about how you look and what you are wearing before you leave the house? Why is it that you are so concerned to get in shape and go to the gym? Why is it that we are so anxious about being late for things? Why is it when we come to like a church prayer meeting, we're anxious about how we pray? Why is it that you are consumed by a concern for the approval of certain other people? Or why is it that you are so determined to be independent and to be seen to succeed without the help of others? It is because our lives are consumed by this race to seek praise for ourselves and to avoid humiliation. We are constantly preserving our own reputation and our right to boast before others. We are constantly formulating our own image, petrified of rejection and criticism. And so our lives become this kind of scavenger hunt for our own glory, don't they? Constantly looking for things that I can be praised. Now this doesn't just consume the everyday things of life. It is crept into how we think about the gospel. Let me ask you another question to move us into the orientation of the Apostle Paul. How is it that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ whilst your friends or your family member or your colleague does not? How is it that you have faith and they have not? Is it that you are just a little bit more humble than they are? Is it that you are just a little bit more capable to understand the truth of the gospel? Is it that you have a little bit more faith than they do? Are they just a little bit more selfish than you? See, if you answer yes to any of those questions, do you see where you're laying praise? It's in ourselves, isn't it? And so when it comes to why am I in heaven and they are not, it ultimately comes down to us. You see how we're trying to rob praise, claim it for ourselves? I think that's it's why we don't suffer well. As we're in this constant kind of scavenger hunt for our own glory, we don't suffer well or even grow old well because we're not able to do what we used to do. It's why we don't serve each other well because I think I deserve to be served by you. It's why we don't do relationships well, because we're constantly competing for glory from one another. Well, Ephesians 1 is here about the business of destroying that Herod-like attitude that is in us and actually saving us from the end of Herod. So look with me at uh, this first sentence in Ephesians. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. He starts off, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then look at verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at the end of verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Then again, the record is still stuck at the end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. There is no gradual crescendo in this letter to the Ephesians. Paul doesn't work himself up to it. It, From the first bar, it is voluminous glory, he says. That word glory has the idea of weightiness heaviness. So who God is in his attributes and what he does in his actions are supremely heavy, weighty, significant, important. 
And so his attributes and his actions combine so that his name, his reputation is to be praised alone. He is infinitely weighty heavy. So think of, you know, balance scales. If we are weighing up who is worthy of glory or praise, it is like there is a ton of bricks on God's side because of who he is and what he does. And on ours, there is not even the weight of a speck of dust. That is what Paul is doing here. Paul in Ephesians 1 is about a radical weight deep redistribution so that God is worthy of praise alone. Verse 3, the first word, praise be, or blessed, in the New Testament, that word is used only of God. This is something that only he deserves. And in this explosion of noise, Paul is determined that we see from eternity to eternity, God is working out his story for his glory. Now, let's just look at a few words that show that there is a story here. So if you see in verse 5, we see the word God's will. See right at the end of verse 5? God has a will. Then at verse 9, it talks about God's plan. Verse 11, it talks about what God has... uh, Oh, sorry, verse 5 is purposed. Verse uh, verse 11 is planned. Then in verse 13 also, he has promised. Do you see what's going on? God has planned and purposed his story since before the creation of the world. He is working it out in history and bringing it to completion in eternity future. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. It is his story for his glory. Now, let's tread water here for a moment before we move on. There is a story behind this creation. There is a plan, a purpose, and what has been promised. See, for some of you, you have had a really hard year. Uh, There has been much suffering, many tears, and it may feel as if God has taken his hands off the wheel, that he's dozed off. Well, I long that you would find comfort in these verses. Because there is great comfort to be found in the fact that in this story, God is working out all things for your good and for his glory. Think with me for a moment to the cross of Christ. If in that moment of extreme suffering, of many tears, of much agony, if even in that moment God is working out his story for the good of your salvation, then I long that you would trust God that even in your agony, your suffering, that you can see that God too is working out his story for your good and for his glory. Uh, Your last year, your last few days are not out with the pages of this story. There is comfort to be found there. And so Paul starts to tell this story from eternity to eternity. And what we're going to see this morning is two things as it were, two weights that redistribute the weights to God's side of the scales to show that he alone is worthy of glory. Two things, one in eternity, one in history. And we're going to see that God working for his own glory is actually no selfish or ugly thing. But actually, when God works for his own glory, there is this colossal overflowing of blessing to us. When we seek our own glory, like Herod, it is self-destructive and ends in death. But when God works for his own glory, there is this overflow of blessing to us, which is 
stunningly, bountifully life-giving. So two things. Here's the first one. The first weight on God's side of the scales, the Father's choice in eternity. Read with me from verse 4. For he, that's God's, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Here's the truth, the doctrine of God's story for his glory. And let me just use the words of Ephesians. That God, before the creation of the world, before you existed, according to his pleasure and will, chose a portion of humanity to be adopted as his sons. Now that is glorious for a multiplicity of reasons. I'm just going to give you a few. Okay, here's reason number one. That is glorious because it preserves God's glory for him alone. Salvation from start to finish is his work from eternity to eternity. It is not that he opened the door and then I walked through. It is not that he came 99% of the way, but I had to come 1% towards him. It is that he does everything from start to finish so that on his side of the scales, all the weights. All of him, nothing of me. Now, as we see the other reasons, we'll see why that is glorious. Because see, secondly, God does for you what you would not and could not have done. He does for you what you would never and could never have done. That is because, actually, when it says in Ephesians 2, describing our nature, it calls us sons of disobedience. I would never have chosen God the Father because I was in active rebellion against him. I was running from him. And you know what? Ephesians 2 gets worse. I could never have chosen him because how does it describe me? Dead in my transgressions and sins. And so the glory of the fact that it was the Father's choice in eternity is that he does for you what you would never and could never have done. He adopts you to be his beloved son or daughter. That is a love that we do not deserve as rebellious sons and daughters. That is a love that we could not earn as those who are dead in our transgressions and sins. That is a deep love. That is a big love. That is a wide love. That he would choose us when we could not or would not have chosen him. Here's the third thing. This gives you phenomenal security in your salvation. Do you ever wake up and think, I can't do this. I don't know if I can go on another day living for Christ. Well, hear this. Because of God's choice of you in eternity, then he shall keep you for eternity. That is good news. Let me read John Calvin to you. He puts this so well. Therefore, when we have our adoption engraven in our hearts, then we have a good and infallible pledge that God will guide us to the end. And that since he has begun to lead us into the way of salvation, he will bring us to the perfection to which he calls us. Because in truth, without him we could not continue so much as a single day. You are loved with an eternal love. And so you will be kept by that eternal love. Is that glorious? Let's just clear up a few things that sometimes get misunderstood 
uh, about this that Ephesians 1 clears up. It is not that God just looked into the future and saw those who would have faith and chose them. That can't be right, can it, from Ephesians 1 verse 5. It was not in accordance with that that God chose us, but why? In accordance with his pleasure and his will. And also it cannot be that God looked at us and saw something worthy of being chosen. That can't be right, can it? Because Ephesians 1 verse 6 says it was to the praise of his glorious grace, which is by definition undeserved. Let me show you this by showing you what verse 4 does not say. Look down at verse 4 and see what I get wrong. It doesn't say, for he chose us before the creation of the world. What does it say? He chose us in him. Now get the bigness of that. Before the creation of the world, that means before the fall, God knew that to choose us as sons, he knew he was going to have to send a savior. He knew that his choice of us as sons was going to be in Christ, in Jesus. Jesus was not plan B, was he? No, no, right from eternity, Jesus was God's story for God's glory. Every blessing is in Christ. Verse 3, it is in Christ. Verse 4, it is in Christ. Verse 6, it is in the beloved, that is Christ. No Jesus, no blessing. And so God preserves all glory for himself. Do you see how Paul is redistributing the weight? We're so Herod-like, so apprentice-like. And yet God says, because of the Father's choice in eternity, he lays this weight on that side of the scales and says, we must give praise to him alone. And do you see how it's not an ugly thing? It's not a selfish thing. Because there's this overflow of blessing that brings you eternal salvation, glorious security, and stunning adoption as his sons. Now let me apply this in two ways before we move on to the second thing important things to see. First one, be like a son and love the father. Now, we could say be like a son or daughter, but actually that term has the idea behind it of being the heir. It's a legal term. So we are all sons, if you like, through Christ. Now, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, David Cameron spoke a lot about uh, absent fathers. Do you remember that? Well, we have no such father having been adopted into Christ, just as he is called the beloved, so we become beloved children, beloved sons. But I fear that sometimes we become absent children. That we talk a lot about salvation, but very little about the Savior. That we can talk a lot about the gift of salvation, but very little about the giver. And actually, rather than loving God, we can use him. We must not be absent sons. We must be those who remember the end of our salvation, that we have been predestined. Why? To be adopted. You have a father who has loved you for eternity. And you're a son with all the privileges for eternity. Love him. Enjoy him. What is your chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So admire him, live for him, love him, desire him, receive from him, request to him. Because he is a father who loves to deal benevolently with his children. Don't be an absent son. But remember the one who you have been saved by, but the one you've been saved for. 
He's your father. Second thing, be a son and reflect the father. Look at verse 4. It says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Why? What is the reason given? To be holy and blameless. Now, that has two reference points. The first reference point is, on the final day of God's judgment, because we have been adopted as a son, we shall stand not in, not in our sinfulness and blameworthiness, but amazingly, we shall stand washed clean by the cross of Christ to stand as holy, blameless. But the other, other reference point is that it impacts the here and now. You are to live now as you shall be then. You've been adopted by the Father. Why? To be holy and blameless. You are to reflect your Father. Sometimes, tragically, sons start to look more like their fathers when they get older. (laughs) I can say that because my dad's not here this morning. But, unfortunately, sometimes when it comes to reflecting our Heavenly Father, we're a bit slower to start looking like Him. But remember this, you have been adopted by him to reflect him, to be holy and blameless. Let the bigness of this thought help you battle sin this week. If you've been chosen in eternity to be holy and blameless, and for the rest of eternity you shall be holy and blameless, to rebel in sin now is actually to rebel against your very purpose for existence. (laughs) How silly is that? Let's get bigger To live a life of sin and reveling in transgressions and sins now is actually to be so far out of line with the entire purpose of this cosmos. (laughs) We are purposed in Christ, adopted into him. Why? To be holy and blameless. Here is your task this week. As As you look after your family, as you go into the office or the workshop, It is to reflect God's glory and to set his glory before the eyes of others. So that as you meet with your friend, as you meet with your colleagues, as you spend time with your family, it's like a weight-shedding exercise. You offload the weight of God's glory onto them so that when they come away from you, they feel like they are weighed down by God's glory. That is our job, to reflect God as his sons, and to show his radiance, his weightiness, his heaviness before the watching worlds. Okay, there's the first weight that is placed on his side of the scales. It is the father's choice in eternity. Secondly, moving into time and space, it is the son's blood in history. Read with me from verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You see how we move from the plan in eternity to the execution of that plan in history. We are not sons by right. Ephesians will describe us later on as sons of wrath. We are enslaved to our sin. And so for God to be the one who chooses us, he must do so in Christ. Uh, The idea of redemption has the idea of buying back a slave at the payment of a price. That's kind of foreign to us. You know when you park your car in one of those car parks that has a barrier? You know that? You get a card when you go in. 
When you go out, what do you have to do before you get your car out? Pay the price. Before you do, your car is enslaved to the evil slave owner of NCP or whoever. I've got nothing against NCP. But it, it is captured. It is enslaved. And so you have to pay the price of your car parking to allow that barrier to be raised. It's the same sort of image. We are enslaved to sin. There is a price on our heads. And there's a price beyond our capability to pay. The glorious good news of the gospel is that God's story for his glory is about a son who would come and die to pay the price that is on your head. That he has come to suffer the death of a child of wrath as he died on the cross so that you might be adopted as a son of God's abundant love. If you go back to the image of the scales, when it comes to your redemption, it is his blood that weighs down the scales in the price for your redemption. So that it is all of his blood and not a drop of yours. He brings full redemption. I, I could not be forgiven were it not for his blood. I could not be a son were it not for the redemption price paid by Christ on the cross. And another slight clarification point. Do you see that it is not that when Jesus died on the cross that he just grants the opportunity for salvation. It is not that when Jesus died on the cross he just made you redeem a bull. But he actually redeemed you so that he could say, it is finished. A guy called John Murray asked the question, what is offered to you in the gospel? And he says, it is not the possibility of salvation. It is not the opportunity of salvation. It is salvation. What is offered is Christ himself in all the glory of his person and in all the perfection of his finished work that is offered. Do you see the difference? He doesn't just offer to you the opportunity to be saved, but he actually has saved you. Now again, let this comfort you. There may be some who came to church this morning with a great guilt weighing on your shoulders. Maybe one particular sin that's just, could God forgive me of that? Or maybe it's just a tremendous amount of sin and you think, I could never be forgiven. If that is your conscience this morning, bring your conscience to the blood of Christ in history and converse with your conscience. Say to your conscience, here at this time in history, the Son's blood was shed for me that I might be redeemed Price paid, job done. Take your conscience to Ephesians 1 verse 7 and let it see the words in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon you. Let me assure you, if that is your conscience, that your sin is not more rich than his grace. That your guilt is not as lavish as his blood. He has paid every single penny. A guy called Martin Luther was a great man of the Reformation and struggled with his conscience. And one night he describes how the devil came to him when he was sleeping and started accusing Luther of being a sinner. 
Look what Luther says to the devil. Dear devil, I hear your accusation. But if you can tell me that I am a bad sinner, I can tell you that Christ died for sinners. Jesus willingly accepted all my sins, all my trouble, all the suffering I deserve forever. Jesus took all my guilt and suffered the bitter death on the cross for me. Now Jesus is responsible for all my sins, not me. You go bother Jesus. You can blame and criticize him. Let me sleep in peace. Not great? That we can know that all our sins were laid on Christ so that there is not a single accusation that can be laid at your door. You have been redeemed because of the Son's blood in history. Do you see that redistribution of weight again? Do you see how he places this massive weight on the side of God's glory and says he alone is to be praised, not only because the Father's choice in eternity, but because of the Son's blood in history. Actually, we do great offense to the cross if we say, oh, I'm not sure if it was enough. Or even if we try and add our own works to our own salvation, we say, oh, God, the cross didn't quite make it. No, no, job done. Price paid. Charlotte Chapel, we must, we must let these two truths battle our Herod-like nature. It is so natural in our society today to seek praise for ourselves. But we must let these two things wage war with our pride, wage war with our arrogance to say it is nothing of me and it is all of him. It is to his praise, to the praise of his glorious grace. And Charlotte Chapel, that is not praised very much in our city. And so it is your role as sons of Christ, sons of God, to reflect him wherever you go this week, to weigh people down with his glory, that they might see the weightiness that he has and that they would seek again to praise his glory and enjoy him as your father. Let me speak to you if you're not a Christian. Uh, Just to close, when it comes to praising something and who you ascribe weight to, It is not a question of whether you do it, but a question of who you ascribe that weight to or what you ascribe that weight to. And that is actually a weight that only God can bear. If you were to lay that weight on your own identity, you will cripple yourself as you are crippled under the expectations of other people. If you place that weight on a relationship that you have, then you are putting on that person a weight that they cannot bear and you will ruin them with your own expectations. Or if you were to put that on your job, it will actually destroy your job so that you're enslaved to achievement. And if you lose that job, then, well, life is no longer worth living. That weightiness cannot be borne by anyone else. So along this morning, you would find your place in his story that you would see that you are in desperate need of this redemption. And that as you come to Christ, you would see actually he liberates you to enjoy that relationship, to enjoy that work as you ascribe praise to the place that it alone must be given. And it's with great joy that I can offer to you this morning the full salvation.
to say that he has paid the price. It was all of his blood that it might be none of mine to the praise of his glory. Let's pray.